The Free for All Roundtable. Round one. HR on line one, please. HR on line one. You like it better when I come in a little late? (laughs) (laughs) Also on the panel today, Deb Hutton is here, former advisor to two Ontario premiers. Scott Reid, CTV political commentator, advisor to a number of prime ministers, including Paul Martin. And uh, let's actually start kind of where we started yesterday, but the ball's been moved somewhat down the field. Uh, John Tory making it clear yesterday that he would delay his departure in order to pass his budget. So budget comes to council on Wednesday. I have some people telling me the lefties are going to make some uh, squawks. And so John Tory may have to stay for an extra 10 days to run out the clock and then use strong mayor powers in order to cement the budget. Uh, Deb Hutton, I know that's one of your nightmare scenarios. Get the budget passed. That's all I care about. When I hear the lefties, I said this yesterday, John, when I hear the lefties start talking about going back to take out the 50 billion or whatever it is, 48 billion out of the police budget that's been proposed, I get really nervous. So let's get the budget passed. Let's get a new mayor in place who isn't on the left side of council for this city and move on. Okay. Scott Reed, your thoughts? I have a different, uh, uh, a different take. I'm not, Bossed one way or another about the budget, um, about the mayor saying on for the budget. I, I question, to be candid, the um, the logic that says someone who's indicated publicly he's leaving still wields a lot of influence and, and authority. And I have a lot of affection for John, but I it feels a little like vanity. But in any event, what I do care about is that this is not some hint, as we see you know rumors kicking around in media, that he might fall prey to those who've urged him to renege his resignation. Uh, And I hope that that isn't something that's seriously considered because that would be 100 miles a bad road. It would end in real humiliation and it would end in the same place. He would still end up having to resign, in my view, and uh, it just would make it really uh, that much more unseemly. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is about the budget and nothing but the budget. Well, and Jerry Agar, a question I asked uh, out loud on the show earlier this morning was, if everything that has happened was disqualifying for John Tory to continue as mayor, then how can he you know, legislate a budget that he has already said, you know, he's not supposed to be the mayor anymore. Well, um, I I would have the same fear that Deb does of the uh, anti-police contingent over at City Hall. And so I wouldn't mind John Tory continuing and using the strong mayor power to push that budget through. Uh, That's something Jennifer McKelvey can't do, because as you pointed out, John, those powers don't devolve to somebody who wasn't elected So um, as mayor. So uh, I would say that. And the only other thing, and I asked this question on Twitter, it's been over 80 hours since he said he was uh, resigning. Where's Patrick Brown's campaign? I had somebody say that they thought Patrick Brown was going to run, but it's not like a a sports franchise. You can't hop from one place to another. You can't? Well, you can go... Have you told Patrick Brown that? No, but at least least he went and ran for mayor in the town he was living in. I mean, I don't think you've... No, he moved to the town. Barry? Hmm. No, Brampton. After he was in Barry, no, he went right. to Brampton. Right. He's, he, Barry is his town. He, it wouldn't take very long uh, for him to get a, a condo in Toronto if that's what he wanted to do and you know run for mayor. Would All you right. be would you be one hundred percent shocked if he did that? Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, I know he's ambitious, but you know, I think I just don't think Torontonians would go for it, and Bramptonites would be like, "Oh, great, what are we?" 
Oh, he, he's ambitious and has no sense of shame. Uh, premiers, uh, premiers have accepted the federal health care funding offer. Scott Reed, let me start with you. You worked in the prime minister's office. Uh, I know this is something I should be excited about, but I can't really quite, you know, even even this political geek can't get too excited. But should I be? No, no. I, I mean, I don't know why you would be excited. I mean, um, this is the way the federal government has designed it. Uh, they decided to de-risk this process. They didn't turn it into a movie. They didn't turn it into a dramatic event where people would be gathered, sweating all night long, trying to figure out whether they can hammer out a deal through genuine tough negotiations. They sort of de-risked the process. So they said, look, there's a minimum number. We're going to negotiate with a bunch of you. What are the premiers supposed to do? They're going to say, no, we're not going to take money at a time when people are freaked out about the stress on the healthcare system. So, you know, I it, it's a positive thing but you know it's uh, most people are going to have what i think is a sensible attitude which is well let's see let's see if it helps Okay, then listen, let's jump to another aspect of the healthcare system. And you guys have a brief this morning based on an article in the Toronto Star. And this is an issue we've touched on before, but it's becoming even more acute. That is that a nurse leaves the public system, goes to work for an agency. The agency puts a premium on the nurse's earnings and assigns them back to a hospital. And all of a sudden, we're on the hook for even more money. Uh, Deb Hutton, this is costing us an awful lot. And, you know, net net, we're not getting anything more out of the nurses. Yeah, and I don't know what the solution here is, John. Uh, after my mom passed away, I wanted to keep my dad in in their home, and he had dementia, so it was 24-7 care. And quite frankly, and I was fortunate because he had worked hard and had the money to do it, I I hired anybody and everybody I could, and I threw money at the problem. And I feel a little like the government has to do the same thing. This is a crisis. We need people to be able to stay in their homes, and when they can't, we need people to look after them. So uh, if I were Doug Ford, I would take every last dollar that he's getting, because as we just discussed, he's not getting a huge amount of money from the federal government, and I would throw it into trying to figure out how we staff our long-term care and our home care Appropriately, And I don't care if it comes from the private sector. I don't care if they're all unionized and have healthy pensions. I care about the fact that we get it fixed in the short term and then we have a better long term solution to making sure that our elderly actually have the dignity of the last few years of their lives helped by the government. The only way the socialized citizen, uh, system that we have has survived at all is through rationing. It's the reason that we are the country probably amongst uh, 30 or so developed countries that has the longest wait times for so many various things. Doug Ford has finally started to try and do something about that with cataract surgery and then knee and hip surgery apparently by using uh, some private clinics. But the problem is we have rationed ourselves into now a crisis. And so the government, has uh, various successive governments have brought this on us and now we have to go to the private sector and say hey we'd like to hire these nurses i don't blame the private sector for saying well here's how much it's going to cost you uh, because this problem exists due to government the russian ambassador to canada says hang on hang on hang on i want to weigh in on this because we just heard one point of view but there's another one which is that a huge part of the problem and the reason that these kind of temp agencies and human health resources have been able to step up and flourish is that 
successive governments, yes, have negotiated contracts with nurses that have meant that their pay and their benefits have not increased to the degree to which makes it competitive. And therefore, a temp agency can say, listen, if you're willing to sacrifice your benefits, we can get you that much more money cash on the barrel head in terms of what you're paid hourly. But then the other problem is the rise of private care in terms of private long-term care, those homes, they their model is based on making certain that they use those temp agencies. And they may bitch and moan about how cost, how much it costs them up front, but it's because they don't want to hire people, pay them good pensions, pay them long-term benefits. That's the challenge. So we're trying to squeeze those who are doing the job, pay them as little as possible, not give them benefits if we can avoid it, not give them pensions if we can avoid it. And then we're surprised when this model turns out to be, you know, uh, pound wise and penny foolish or penny wise and pound foolish, I should say. Okay. Um, the Russian ambassador uh, to Canada says Canada is a very dangerous country to visit and we're not being very pleasant. Um, you might be able to explain to the ambassador that when you invade a foreign country and murder people, that maybe Canadians and people around the world aren't going to like you all that much. Deb Hutton, I don't want Russian expatriates who live and work here to pay the penalty of Vladimir Putin. But if you wanted to travel to Canada right now as a Russian, or if you wanted to do business in Canada as a Russian, I think you have to wear the Ukrainian invasion. Yeah, and I take it as a badge of honor that he has said this about our country, period. Uh, Booyah! <laughs> there you go. Well, Scott Reed, he's been called in and dressed down, I think, five times now, which, again, must be kind of an enjoyable experience to treat the Russian ambassador like a schoolboy. You know, it's a lot riskier than being a Russian visiting Canada, being a neighbor of Russia. This yeah. is just... And we are one. Political theater, BS. Uh, this is the first anniversary of the Declaration of the Emergencies Act. I don't know if there's anything really to add to the debate except to reflect, wow, that's that's been one freaking year, Jerry. Oh, okay, but that was a year ago. We're moving on. Yeah, well, we're going to get the report soon. Deb, any thoughts or shall we keep moving? Uh, I did find it interesting that we didn't have the report before the first anniversary. Just I don't know whether it was that they thought it might incite things. Maybe they legitimately aren't done. I don't know. But next week, I think, is really the important piece, which is to see whether or not the government truly was, as I believe it was, justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. Well, it may just be, Scott Reed, that the judge is, like uh, any university student, up late and behind schedule. Well, he's indicated that from the get-go, and I have some sympathy for the fact that his timeline is punishing if you want to do a thorough, thoughtful um, uh, examination of all this. Uh, the other thing I would say is that I wish this anniversary had happened three weeks ago because I think the grave error we made was taking too long to invoke the Emergencies Act and uh, alongside the absolute abject policing failure that uh, we saw in Ottawa. Um, what do you guys make, and maybe it's a little too pointy-headed, but I think piece in the Globe and Mail today by an economist where he points out that uh, wealthy countries uh, spent a fortune trying to fight COVID and sometimes poorer countries that didn't have those resources ended up doing better. Scott? It's it's dumb. He's, he's making an observation about something and you know, withdrawing a conclusion. Is that conclusion that, you know what, it turns out you didn't need to spend in the first place. It was better to just, you know, be in a poor country. There's no real difference. Uh, I think it's, I, th I think a large part of why we, you know, we didn't see it take hold in uh, the developing world is because the developing world is young. And by the way, the fact that the developing world is young is going to create a whole set of stresses 10, 15, 20 years down the road for us that we'd better come to grips with soon.
Uh, Jerry Agar, he makes some points about financial catastrophes and how wealthy countries spend a fortune. And maybe if we just let the whole thing fester, we'd get through an economic downturn faster okay, but and we cheaper. Got, yeah, we got into the pandemic. And now in hindsight, we're looking back and saying, OK, these mistakes were made with CERB and these mistakes were made with the wage subsidy program and everything. But I also recall a lot of us, including me, who I, you know, will certainly criticize uh, uh, overspending and certainly criticize the liberals, uh, saying, well, we have to do it. We have to do it. You're legislating people out of work, so therefore you're going to have to throw money their way. Um, and we knew there would be fraud, waste, abuse, and incompetence involved in the whole thing going into it. But, you know, I interviewed some years ago a business guru like Brian Tracy, I think it was. And he said, when you have a problem in your life, the first thing to look at is, are you in a position to buy your way out of that problem? Because if you are, do that. Because tomorrow, you won't be thinking about that problem anymore. So you know what? The headline on this thing, some countries can be too rich. There's no such thing as too rich. We got to call it there, but thank you all. Very lively and uh, very ideas-driven discussion this morning on round one. My thanks to Scott Reed, Jerry Agar, and Deb Hutton. Catch the round table, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.